Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Yo, how's it going? Today is the day. We are wrapping up our first and greatest commandment of capitalism series. And I don't know about you, but I have personally learned a lot by asking how the first and greatest commandment of capitalism impacts employees, debtors, working class renters and homeowners, and even communities like the people of Puerto Rico. Good to be on the journey and in the struggle with you all. And just so you know, in the coming episodes, we've got several interviews with Christians who are committed to socialist and anti-capitalist struggles. We're going to be talking about faith, queer liberation, racism, some of the limits of liberal Christianity, and, of course, how Jesus might point us toward class struggle. Damn, I am so stoked. So I hope you'll listen in and invite others to tune in as well. But before we get started with today's episode, a huge thank you to the Patreon supporters who financially contribute to this work. For real, you are helping make past and future content available for other working class Christians, and I can't thank you enough. Y'all are wonderful, and if you haven't reached out to say hi in a while, I'd love to hear from you and hear about what's going on in your life these days. Um, So yeah, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or at faithandcapital at gmail.com. All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and dive into today's episode because capitalism is killing the beloved creation. As creatures caught up in this infinite web of relationships, that is existence, we must come to flourish together or we will increasingly suffer together. Here's what we're going to do in today's episode. Number one... For the final time of the series, I want to name the first and greatest commandment of capitalism. Then, I want us to think about a value which God sees in creation in the first creation story, goodness. Next, we'll talk about the primary way capitalism values all that God has created, named, and seen as good. And finally, I want to ground a vision of a cross-creature environmental solidarity in an interpretation of the first creation narrative. Let's get to it. Capitalism, whether it be a more private capitalism like we have uh, in the U.S. or a more state capitalism as we've seen in other countries, has a first and greatest commandment. And this ultimate commandment is to endlessly pursue growth, to maximize profits, to expand one's capital at all costs. The system of capitalism systemically forces individual capitalists, like our bosses, the major shareholders of our workplaces, the banks, auto lenders, and student loan financiers, to accumulate more wealth at the end of every quarter and every year than what they had started out with. It seeks infinite expansion in in a very finite world. Capitalism doesn't simply value production for production's sake and accumulation for accumulation's sake as one value equal among all other values, like, I don't know, human dignity, planetary sustainability, 
The physical and mental well-being of communities. Gender and sexual equality. <laughs> no. It values production and accumulation above all other values. Profits are the primary goal, even if they come at the expense of our relational well-being. And because of this systemically induced drive for capitalists to constantly be accumulating more than what they had a year ago, or yesterday, or literally just a few nanoseconds ago, capitalism has increasingly expanded the parts of creation it commodifies. In this series, we've discussed how working peoples are forced to commodify their own labor power in exchange for wages so that they and their loved ones can survive. We've looked at how more and more of the most basic human necessities have been made available only through credit. We've talked about how housing has been hyper-commodified and is primarily produced in societies like the U.S. so that financiers and developers and landlords can profit off our dependence upon roofs, running water, and heat. But underlying the commodification of human labor and human necessities, right, turning them into things that are bought and sold, is the reduction of nature, non-human creatures, and literally any part of the beloved creation to merely being a means for the end of profit. Above all, that tree, that oil, those whales, that ecosystem, or even the entire planet is labeled valuable insofar as it is profitable. Nature's primary value is not based on how human beings might need to use it for survival. And it certainly is not valued as good in and of itself. Instead, it's exchange value, right? what the commodity can be bought and sold for is what is most important. Sure, it may have taken millions of years for the planet to create this thing we call oil. Sure, when you stop to think about what all had to happen for these giant pools of ancient liquidified fossils to form beneath the Earth's current surface, you really start to feel small and not as significant as we tell ourselves our last tweet or Instagram post was. But, at the end of the week, the big oil industry can't be thinking about the sheer complexity and beauty and profundity, let alone any kind of divinely observed goodness that is found in this thing that lies deep beneath the Earth's soil. All that matters is the report at the end of the quarter that says profits have gone up. We made more money this year than we did last year. All life on this planet... Every creature, every plant, every inch of soil and water, and now even every square inch of air above our cities, towns, and nations are being bought. Their exchange value is more important than any other value we might prescribe to them. This capitalist drive to commodify the entire planet would have us ask, what are the fish of the sea? What are the trees of the forest? What are the mountains of the world? Who are our neighbors but instruments through which we could produce and accumulate wealth? However, the powers and principalities behind the forces of capitalism are not the only powers with a perspective of nature. At the beginning of the book of Genesis, we have two creation stories. 
The first one starts with Genesis chapter 1 and ends with chapter 2 verse 4. The second creation story starts with chapter 2 verse 5 and goes through the rest of the chapter. Although I think they both have positive and negative implications about the relationships between creatures and creator, between humans and non-humans, and between humanity and things like plants, water, land, and sky, I want us to consider God's valuing of creation through the lens of the first creation story. Repeatedly, God observes a goodness about creation, and it is its goodness that God notices above all else. In the first creation story, God creates, God names, and God sees. Now, God doesn't just see creation in any old way. God doesn't see the earth, its vegetation, its creatures, as mere objects to be used in any way for any reason. God doesn't see creation as something to be dominated or abused, let alone destroyed. Rather, God sees creation as good. And I want us to think about this goodness as a value. Goodness is the primary value of that which God has created. It's interesting. The waters are gathered so that the dry land can emerge. Then God co-creates with the land plants, seeds, and fruit. And it's then that the author says God notices, even observes, creation's goodness. Same thing with the skylights and the birds and the great sea monsters and the creeping things of every kind. God speaks them into existence and co-creates the creatures with the waters, the skies, and the soil. But God always stops to observe its ultimate value, creation's goodness. And one thing that sticks out to me in this uh, first creation story is that the creator, right, the, the spirit of God values creation as good. Nature's goodness is something that must be seen. Now, it could be said that to see creation's goodness is to see nature through the eyes of God. Let me say it like this. To value creation as good is to see creation through the lens in which God sees creation, which means to see the waters, the lands, the skies, and all the earth's living beings in any other way would be a failure to see nature through the eyes of the Creator. This has implications we'll get to in a minute. But, as we all know, God makes one more creature at the end of chapter 1. God says to the other heavenly beings, or depending on how you want to translate it, the other gods, that they ought to make one more creature, a creature in their own image. Humankind is to be imaged in their own likeness. Imaging. It could be said that imaging is way more than a shallow copying of appearance. Imaging has real material consequences. It has political, social, and yes, even economic implications. For God to image humankind in the likeness of God is to make human beings representatives of the heavenly beings on earth. We are to till the garden, care for creation, relate to one another, 
in a manner that represents the Creator. It is as if the creatures are to be incarnated by the Creator. When the other creatures, the vegetation and the rest of the beloved creation, experiences humankind, they should be experiencing the Creator. And if God observes, if God sees above all a goodness of creation, then humankind, being imaged after the divine, must also see this goodness. The author tells us how we are to perceive the world. We are to perceive nature's goodness. Above all else, we are to value its goodness, value one another's goodness, value the other creatures and the lands and the waters goodness, because when we value creation as being good in and of itself, above all other values, we can align our habits, our ways of being in relationship, our deepest desires and concerns with God's perspective of and love for this web of ecosystems. It's true. In the first creation story, humans are given dominion over creation. But I don't think we need to hear this as a rationalization for destruction, a justification for using the earth however we see fit. Being imaged in the likeness of God does not give us the freedom to destroy or exploit or annihilate the planet. That is not the God we are imaged after, although it is the God many Christians have come to embody and obey. It could be said that in the first creation story, God gives humanity the freedom to see the goodness of all creation. That is what we are free to do. This is not a freedom of individual choice. No, we are free to till the garden, free to care for the other creatures and one another, free to live in right relationship with the vegetation and the skies and the rest of the beloved creation. And of course, we are free to live in right relationship with our creator. That is the great responsibility we have been assigned as creatures fashioned in the likeness of the life-giving God who, unlike other gods of death and destruction, values nature as essentially good. Seeing the cosmos, how God sees it, has material implications for how we ought to live in this interconnected web of relationships. But the problem, as we all know, is that capital, in its obsession with expanding itself, in its idolatrous drive to endlessly grow and produce and accumulate more of itself, primarily sees creation not as something that is good in and of itself, beyond the realm of exchange value, but as something that should be used to produce profits. The creatures who are primarily seen by the creator as good are primarily seen by capital as potential instruments of profit-making. And this ultimate goal of capital, this prioritization of exchange value over use value, endless profit-making over human needs and environmental sustainability, let alone any kind of divinely observed value outside of human use, is in tension with the goodness which the author tells us God sees. God does not measure or calculate or quantify 
the fruits or the sea monsters or the skylight's goodness. God observes the land and the waters and the creatures and says there is something about this vast web of relationships that is overflowing with goodness and God sees it. I don't think it's that hard to read the first creation story as anti-capitalist or in the least anti-productivism. And if it's not already obvious, here's why. The God who creates names and sees creation as ultimately good, as fundamentally, if not essentially good, could never allow its goodness to be destroyed in the name of profit, in the name of economic growth. You see, these conflicting visions of creation, one, seeing nature as good in and of itself, regardless of how humans use it or don't use it. The other, seeing nature as a means for producing monetary value, no matter the consequences, cannot coexist. If you prioritize a person's or a creature's or a natural resource's exchange value over its goodness and over the relational well-being of creation, you don't care how that part of nature ends up. Its well-being your relationship with it. None of it matters. All that matters is that you end up with more capital than what you originally started out with. This contradiction of values has driven capitalism to wage war against creation and therefore war with the creator. Capitalism has pit creation against itself. It has compelled humankind imaged in the likeness of the heavenly beings to, on one hand, deny its responsibility to care for and defend other creatures in the planet. Yet, on the other hand, capitalism drives us to senselessly reduce our own neighbors, other non-human creatures, and the essential plurality of creation's living beings to mere means for the end of profit. We have become alienated from ourselves, our fellow creatures, and from the rest of creation. And in experiencing this brutal alienation and brokenness of relationship as creatures of the beloved creation, capitalism has increasingly alienated us from our own creator. The system of capitalism fails to see the goodness of creation. Instead of seeing goodness, it looks past the land, past the water, past the human and non-human creature, and sees a calculable, measurable monetary value. All of us can be bought and sold. All of us can be used to make someone else rich. Under capitalism, what happens to you and I and the planet in the long run doesn't matter. All that matters is the immediate accumulation of wealth. And the Christian belief that creation should be valued beyond its potential exchange value. The belief that creation is good, whether some get rich off of it or not, is a barrier that capital constantly seeks to remove. I want to wrap this up by grounding our liberation in our profound interrelatedness. Human beings are creatures among creatures, created beings among the expanse of creation. Yes, we have been assigned the huge role of representing the God that sees existence as fundamentally good, but we are still creatures, 
just like non-human creatures and other living beings. We all come from the same soil, the same planet, the same dust. So something we need to consider is how our salvation, the redemption and liberation of humanity as a whole, especially those most vulnerable and exploited, is infinitely intertwined with the liberation of the rest of the beloved creation. We will flourish together or we will suffer together. The fact that we are deeply interconnected with the rest of nature, simultaneously forming and being formed by all other creatures, means that there is no future for human beings on this planet without a commitment to environmental solidarity. A cross-creature, cross-ecosystem solidarity is needed if we wish to thwart the wounds and the agony and the degradation of God's creation that is yet to come. We will flourish together, or we will suffer together. But if humanity wants to remain the imaged creature on this planet, we will have to replace capitalism with a system that values creation as essentially and inherently good above all else. There is no more room, no more time, for the principalities and powers of infinite productivism and ruthless exploitation on this planet. If we don't begin to defend the goodness of the beloved creation above its potential exchange value, as the author of this story suggests we do, our time on this planet will be shortened and the imaged creatures will fail to represent the heavenly beings no more. Thanks for listening, and a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.